Hey, before we get started, we just want to let you know that this episode is brought to you by Church Sound Made Simple. Mixing sound seems complicated, but it doesn't have to be. Cut the overwhelm by getting access to the stress-free, no-fluff training that will help you create great sound at church. Visit churchsoundmadesimple.com. Well, welcome to the Collaborate Worship Podcast, where we help you create great sound at church. I'm your host, Cade Young, and today I'm here with Doug Gould. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great, Kate. How are you? I'm good. Uh, Doug and I are going to be talking about microphones, but before we get into that, let me tell you a bit about Doug in case you haven't got a chance to meet him yet. Doug has served in management roles at Sure and Tascam. He's also served as a worship leader, musician, and sound tech at various churches throughout his career. He's presented at hundreds of worship conferences all over North America and beyond, and all of this comes from his passion to use his experience with sound to teach others. So, Doug, how long have you been doing this, and why are you so passionate about it? Well, I've been doing the the industry thing for a long time, but it was actually sure that gave me the first shot at just focusing on the church. So even though I was a professional musician till 30, then I was a rep for like JBL and Audio-Technica. Then I was a sales manager for EMU Systems. I'm a keyboard player. Then I worked for Tascam for 10 years. None of that had anything to do with the church. It was just strictly sales management, right? And then sure gave me the job as U.S. Market Development Manager. And market development means you're not selling, you're helping end users understand product and how to use them in their applications. So because I was a worship leader in a tech, I said, well, you mind if I focus on the church? Because that's an area that really needs a lot of education. And they let me go for seven years. That's all I did was church conferences, like 30 to 40 a year. Then they made me artist relations for sure, for worship. I started worship uh, notes. At Sure, uh, did some publications myself. I wrote the book uh, with somebody else named Chris Tapia on uh, introduction to wireless systems and in-ear monitor systems for churches. Uh, they still published that, but they took my name off when they let me go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so seven years I did that. I, I signed Chris Tomlin, Lincoln Brewster, David Crowder, Israel Houghton, a bunch of people to Sure endorsements. And then uh, 2009, they let me go. And I still had 25 events left to do on the calendar when they let me go. And they said, we're not going to do them. Uh, so call them up and tell them you're not coming. So I called them all up and they said, Doug, we don't really care about sure. We want you to come and teach. Is there any way you can get here? So then I saw some light at the end of the tunnel. I said, hi, here's some leverage. Maybe I can convince some other companies to come alongside and support me in these efforts to train the church. So over the last... I don't know, 10, 11 years up until last year, actually. I had PreSonus, Audio-Technica, Waves, West Tone, Ultimate Ears. I've had all kinds of clients come along and support me. AT and PreSonus, the longest. Um, and then last year, just it, it hit the fan, and everybody kind of dropped off. So Yamaha filled in for a bit for PreSonus. Earthworks came on board for a while. And now I have Audix as a mic client, and I have Mackie as a, as a sound company client. Uh, you had Martin Guitars for a while, for three years, but they were hit hard by the pandemic. Their factory is still kind of shut down for the most part. So um, my my focus is volunteers at church. And what, why is that my passion? Because faith comes by hearing. Okay, and <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I, I just I just want people to understand the word of God. Uh, and to me, what's happening in the church it becomes more of a a, a production. Uh, factor than it is actually 
changing people's hearts, you know, and, and I'm all about changing people's hearts. And whatever position you're at in a church, you're still a pastor. So if you're a, a tech director, you're pastoring your team. If you're a worship leader, you're pastoring your team, and you are representing worship to the church. But worship's more than music, right? And yeah, I mean, I can worship as a sound guy. I can worship as a greeter. I can worship in my house every day. And I, do I need any of this gear to worship? No, I don't. One of the best experiences I ever had was when I was teaching at seminars for worship with Paul Balash, Brian Dirksen, Catherine Scott, and a lightning strike hit the church, took out everything. So Paul, wow. Catherine, and Brian went to the middle of the church. It was actually in a Catholic church that they were holding this seminar, even though it was a multi-denominational thing. And because it was Catholic church, there was a lot of candles. <laughs> so the candles came on. <laughs> Perfect. And with, and with acoustic guitars, everybody surrounded them in the middle. With no PA, no lights, and it's probably one of the most unbelievable worship experiences I've ever had. So that's my passion, to teach people who don't know anything about this something about it. I'm not the guy like a like a Cade or a Jeff Sandstrom or a Lee Fields or Robert Scoville. I'm not that guy. I'm primarily a musician who teaches basic audio. So that's it. That's awesome. So, you know, we're like a year into the pandemic now. So you haven't done conferences for quite some time. Do you miss them? I do. The last conference I did was in September, but I hadn't done one before that since March. So the whole from March to September was empty, but I taught an experience last September at Orlando. I'm teaching um, in Ohio next week to a thing called David U. It's a thing for worship leaders, spiritual practical, and they're bringing me in to teach some sound workshops. Uh, and then the two weeks after that, I'm in Lancaster at a conference called Atoma, which is, again, an in-person event. So it looks like they're starting to come back a little bit. Paul Balash will be there, Meredith Andrews, and I'm teaching a couple workshops with Kent Morris from Sweetwater. And uh, and then July looks like there's more happening. Loop Community is doing one in June called Worship Innovators, which is virtual. I'm teaching at that one. And uh, looks like somewhere coming on in the fall again. Simply in Massachusetts, Christian Musician Summit in November. Uh, Orlando will have experience again in September. So they're coming little by little. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Well, in every podcast interview, we always take a moment to bring a failure out into the open so we can laugh oh. together and learn something along the way. Because the truth is, we all make mistakes, and they seem really heavy whenever you think you're the only one doing it. But it turns out even the pros are out there making mistakes. So, Doug, fess up. Tell us an embarrassing story about when you mess something up. <laughs> how long How long is your show? <laughs> <laughs> how long do we need? <laughs> There's too many failures to mention, man. I mean, when you you know, man. Sometimes you'll, you'll see something that's not working. So, before thinking about it and just sitting where you are and just taking a second to realize what might this be besides the thing that I think it might be. Like a mic that doesn't work. How many volunteers are just rushing to the stage with a new mic or a new cable instead of looking at the console to see if the mute was on or if it's bust to something, right? So just take yeah. a second. I've done that hundreds of times, okay? Or checking something out that's not even plugged in. But I think the funniest story was when I was actually a worship leader, and they had tried putting a head-worn mic on me instead of the, the 58 on a boom, right? And uh, I have this nasty habit of when I'm not singing, I'm humming low, like, right? And the sound guys couldn't figure out what the 60-cycle hum was. 
pulling, <laughs> pulling their hair out. One day they're soloing it and they see me up there humming. And after the service, the guy rips the thing off my head and says, we're putting you back on a microphone on a boom again. This is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem with headworms, right? You can't get away from them. If you sneeze, yeah, you true. cough, right? Where's the mute switch, yeah. right? So anyway, that was probably one of the funnier ones, but. There's lots. There's too many. I'll write a book of failures someday. <laughs> you actually reminded me of a time that I was at a funeral, of all things, and the band's up there playing, but nothing is coming through the PA. <laughs> and, you know, everybody's just watching for, you know, a good 10 seconds. And then finally, full volume, the whole thing comes on because apparently they, <laughs> they like undid a mute group or something like that. I'm like, man. <laughs> If they would have just taken one more second to like think through that, they would have pulled the main fader down, then unmuted and, and right, faded right. it back in. Yeah. <laughs> or phantom power with the fader up, right? And same thing. Yep. Pop. Oh, and it's a cheap speaker and the tweeter blows and uh, yep. it's too funny. <laughs> or, you know, another mistake a lot of people make, especially with digital consoles with the various fader layers. I was in a church that had an LS9 and for a long time, guys didn't know what page they were on. So they think they're riding the kick up a little bit, but they're actually on page three where the monitor is for the worship leader. And they just cranked his ears up to like 200 dB, right? And blew his ears uh, out. You got to be on the right page, right? Oh, another yep, mistake, no too many mics. Just don't use too many. Start with fewer and add them if you need them. But too many mics is going to make it sound way worse. And we'll talk about that later with phase and stuff. But Yeah. Yeah, so, so let's get into that. Let's talk microphones because there's so many times where we're trying to, you know, make something sound great at the mixer and we to totally forget that the output is always a reflection of the input. And this reminds me of a friend of mine who likes to make a joke. It's hard to polish a turd. <laughs> <laughs> and when we don't choose the right microphone and use it correctly, that's exactly what we're trying to do. So what are some common problems we face simply because we're not using the micro the right microphone or using it correctly? Okay, well, the right microphone could be. We'll, we'll talk. I saw in your little notes the uh, the differences between dynamics and, and condensers and, and even ribbons and where they're used. But before you even get to that, you have to also include patterns, right? Cardioid, hypercardioid, omnidirectionals, supercardioids, you know, figure eights. And a lot of times people don't understand patterns, let alone the type of operating principle that it has. So, Dynamics, obviously, are going to be good for certain things. Condensers, because they're more expensive and, and have maybe a wider frequency response, people think, oh, this is going to be great for everything. But no, because of their sensitivity, it could actually be the, the absolute worst thing to use, especially if you're a worship leader using like a nice condenser three feet in front of a drum set. Now the church has got the best drum mic they ever had, right? So. Mm -hmm. Everything has its place, and you have to look at all the considerations. But again, we're going to go back to the source. How do you place a microphone on a source you've never heard before? What do you do? How do you mic a bazooki? <laughs> you tell me. How do you mic a bagpipe or a shofar? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. <laughs> so what I do is I have the person play. I block off one ear because a microphone, unless it's a stereo mic, is not stereo. And walk around the instrument. Get down on your knees, stand up, and maybe find a place that maybe sounds a little sweeter to start with. Now, again, if you're doing live sound, you can't get too far away, right? Distant miking really doesn't work for live applications. So you got to get closer to the source. But again, there's still going to be a spot that sounds better. And where you put it, how you place it, 
on axis, off axis, farther away, closer, is making a huge difference. Huge. Even like millimeters make a difference when it comes to output for frequency response and gain. So where you put it is really important. Too many churches are just putting mics up willy-nilly, putting them up on the kit, putting it on a guitar amp, going back to the mixer and EQing it. What I like to have is an A2 on the stage, moving the mic until I get a sweet spot. And when I get a sweet spot, now I don't have to do any of this. The mic is doing it with the source. Maybe rolling off the lows, high pass. If you want to do another high pass, for instance, you can just pull the mic back. That'll get rid of the lows. <laughs> you want to make it less bright? Turn it off axis. Like a hi-hat. You're pointing it right at the hi-hat bell. It's too bright, brittle. Turn it off axis. It'll cream it out. So just moving things, little bits, are going to change a world for you. And then you won't have to do as much here. You can't fix everything with EQ, especially if you've just set your gain and now you're boosting something or you're cutting it. Mm-hmm. So when you're setting gain, which I just saw your podcast on that, your video, Take into account, volunteers who are listening, that when you're setting gain, leave yourself maybe a couple dB extra if you have to boost anything in your EQ. Mm -hmm. Because if you're up to like on an analog mixer up to zero and you boost EQ, now you're way in the red. Yeah. Also make sure that the number of microphones that you have open, every time you double open microphones, you're going to lose system gain. So you have Mm -hmm. to think about that when you're setting gain too. Anyway, those are some common things. Um, and we'll talk about types if you want to. Uh, How much time will you spend like on mic placement? In a recording studio forever. I just did a master clinic a couple years with Frank Filippetti. I don't know how many Grammys the guys won. But the guy is all about phase. So he'll take tape measures and his XY axis on a drum set is completely different from what you'd see on a live sound stage. But wow. just to give you a short anecdote. This studio is a million-dollar studio, beautiful place up in Maine. And they just did a a record with Guster, and they had Frank come in to do a master clinic. So he asked the owner of the studio, play me your best tracks. So he plays them these tracks, and there's like 30 engineers there. There's guys from Berkeley and University of Massachusetts, studio owners, and they're all listening, and they're all tapping their foot and going, oh, this is great, man. Great groove, drums sound awesome. And Frank's sitting there, and he's not saying anything. And then he kind of says, uh, can, can you just um, do me one favor? Can you uh, bring up just the uh, the drums on the overheads <clears throat> and the snare and the kick? So he did. And he says, can I just do one thing? He goes over to the snare drum, and he flips the polarity 180, and the thing went open right up. Even though the drum tracks were done, mastered, and produced, he did this on these tracks, and nobody's going like, oh, my God, just from hitting the phase button. Wow. And then he had a plug-in, which is like a beat detector, and it measures the transient time from the left to the right overhead. And he says, can I just play with that a minute? And he timed them up so that the snare drum hit them both at the same time. Again, 10 times better. No compression, no EQ. Just just that. So what he does, he says, you don't want to do that after the fact. You want to get your mics in phase to begin with. So he measures them. If I hit it here, speed of sound is 1,130 feet per second. That snare drum will hit these two mics at exactly the same time. They'll be in phase. 
or use an XY, which is good too. But yeah, mic placement is critical. Yeah. Sounds fun to be in the studio doing all of that too. But in live live sound, you don't have the time. No. So what do you do? So you don't so you try to use best practices is what I can say. Like for drum applications, try to get the reflections removed, which is a drum shield. Reflections are gonna all make all the mics respond the same way. I've done recordings where I have a drum set in a in a, a closure and I ask the people to Tell me which microphone I'm soloing. They can't tell because when all the drums hit, they're reflecting off the plexi three feet away and coming back into all the mics at different times. It's a mess. You take the shield off and everybody can tell me exactly what drum I'm soloing after that. Wow. So what I say is if if you're in a small church, use a small kit, get rid of the shield. That'll help. Have drums that are for projection, have them more for tone smaller kits you know i don't really like the plaid the plastics and the hot rods and that stuff but get a drummer who can play with a small kit joey parish who plays with shane and shane a lot he makes a little kit called the parish drums and they're unbelievable they use them at watermark uh jenny riddle who wrote a bunch of songs songwriters she's got a studio she's got one in her studio they're amazing for small churches um Without using electric electronic drums, uh, nobody wants to play little eight-inch rubber pads, right? Just give me a real drum set. <laughs> but you don't want it to be overpowering for the room. So when they do the stupid thing, they put a plexiglass shield in front of them. Would you put a PA in a gymnasium and not treat the gym? So why do we put the loudest instrument in a highly reflective space like that? Because everybody else is doing it. It's so stupid. <laughs> it's dumb. I, one shield I will get you uh, – we'll give a recommendation for are the, are the symbol shields because you know, as a fact that that symbol hash, that high frequency stuff gets into your mics, leave the drums alone. If you want to deflect anything, put some little round plexiglass in front of your symbols and move that away. I'll, I'll go for that, but not putting the whole kit in a room with a windshield around it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's good stuff. We use those round circular shields in front of our cymbals too, because we have a small stage, so our vocals are maybe three to five feet in front of the drums. Right. And it's it helps a lot to keep right. those cymbals out of the vocal mics. Right. All right, let's get into the difference between dynamic and condenser microphones. Okay. So dynamics are your more, most common microphones. You know, SM58s, SM57s, Audix OM5, OM3, OM7. Everybody knows that dynamics are more affordable. Um, how affordable do you want your church to uh, to go? I would say a good dynamic mic is going to cost you about eighty bucks and up. The not so good ones are going to be five for eighty bucks, and they'll throw in one for free. Don't <laughs> don't don't buy those because this is the, the the first link in your chain is the microphone. So get the best mic that you can afford because it'll sound better. And it'll last longer. Mm. All right. So dynamic mics are basically the same exact thing as a loudspeaker in reverse. You've got a diaphragm. You've got a, a coil of wire that goes over a magnet. And as the acoustic vibrations push the diaphragm, the, the coil moves. It's called a moving coil. <laughs> and it creates current, electricity. 
just small amount of current, or you know, millivolts. Microphones are small, little levels. So when it comes into the mic- mixer, it's got to come up to line level. You talk, you talk about this in setting gain. That's what the mic mm-hmm. preamp does. Uh, the problem with dynamic mics is uh, they don't do very well with distant miking. So if you're trying to use SM58s for your choir, please stop. All you're doing is creating feedback. If you're trying to use it for something high frequency, they don't go up that high. And if you're using dynamic mics for kick drum, they make specialized dynamic mics for low frequency. So those are good. And you can use it on a flute if you want to, but if you look at the frequency curve, it's probably not going to do that much for the flute frequencies. They're affordable. They're reliable. You can use them on just about anything except distant miking. I wouldn't use them for overheads, choirs, ensembles, anything like that. But I would use them for snare drums, for kick drums, for guitar cabinets, for vocals. Um, why would I use a dynamic vocal mic instead of a condenser? For the reasons I said before, condensers are way more sensitive, so they'll pick up more area. That's where you have to start looking at patterns. Condensers are different. Condenser, another name for condenser is a capacitor. Capacitor is something that stores a charge. So you have a uh, you have a conductive diaphragm and you have a, con- a permanently charged backplate. So when vibrations hit that, the thing isn't really moving like a moving coil. It's changing the capacitance between the backplate and the front diaphragm, and that produces electricity. You just about breathe on a condenser and you've got sound. And these are ideal for things that need extended frequency response. More sensitivity, acoustic instruments, overheads, choirs, ensemble, area recording, ambient microphones. And in the studio, vocals on a stage, too, for vocals. But you can't stand in front of the drum set because it's too sensitive. So you got to make sure that where you're using it, you're not going to pick up a lot of adjacent sound from it because of their sensitivity. Ribbons are used a lot now, too, on stage. But by nature, ribbons are bi-directional to pick up front and back. It's a figure-eight pattern most of the time. So if you're miking a guitar cabinet, you might want to baffle the back of it. But once you've listened to a ribbon on a guitar cabinet, you're probably not going to go back to too many dynamics or condensers. They just reveal harmonics that the other guys don't. They're really natural sounding. That's interesting. I've, I've actually not heard that about ribbon mics, so now I want to try one. Is there any other uses for ribbon mics other than miking a oh, guitar yeah. cabinet? You can use them on vocals. Um this guy named Scotty Murray used to play with Brenton Brown for a long time. He's a big Nashville session guy. I sent him a couple of ribbons years ago. He uses them on pianos, cellos, vocals, everything. But his guitar cabinets, he's like, wowed. You know, you could put a dynamic a condenser on a, on a Marshall, <laughs> Marshall cab, play them. They have their distinct, unique sounds, like an SM57 or a, you know, a Neumann or combinations of that. And they'll put a ribbon on and they'll go, holy Christmas, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> because they just work differently. It's like a piece of corrugated aluminum. Nowadays, they use different materials. But it's in a U-shaped magnet. And the sound comes in front and back. And it just produces this very natural sound. Um, almost like a human ear in some ways. Uh, yeah, you might you want to try some. And Audix yeah. just came out with some, but I'm waiting for them to send me some so I can play with them. But um, yeah, Royer makes a good one. Uh, AT makes some nice ones. Don't forget about condensers, too. They require phantom power. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's on your console. It'll either be global and turn phantom power on every channel, 
like an old powered mixer might have. But most of the current consoles are per channel. So just make sure your channel's muted before you flip it on. If you're doing a sound check and the mic's not working, maybe the worst way to went out and bought a condenser this weekend and you didn't know it. So mute it first, flip the fader up, try it again. If that doesn't, then you have to go through the rigmarole of what the problem is on that channel. But uh, I can hear a question coming up about that. So okay. we need phantom power with a condenser microphone, but will it hurt my dynamic microphone if I accidentally have phantom power on? Not unless it's a Radio Shack mic. It bursts into flames <laughs> if you do that. But, but they're out of business now, so don't worry about it. No, dynamics are wired differently, so it discharges that charge. It doesn't have anything to do with the with the operation of the mic. Yeah, that's good. So on our vocal microphones for live sound, we're pretty much going to be using a dynamic microphone most of the time. So um, how far away would you say that dynamic microphone should be from a singer's mouth in a live setting? As you know, some singers like to get right on the mic. Uh, that's why, you know, guys like Van Morrison, they would use like a, a Beta 57 because it didn't even have the ball on it. They'd put their mouth right on the end of it. And that's great. But then you have to do some things like high passing and make sure the pops are get eliminated because you're going to get a lot of that. I like at least like a thumb length, <laughs> you know, about like that. Yeah. And then try to keep it there. But if you're singing like a backup singer and you're just running around with a tambourine and you're holding it out and singing like this, or, or you think you have to pull it away three feet when you hit the high note, I mean, don't do that. And if you can't be consistent, then put it on a stand and put an X on the stage and make them stand there. Because the thing you need is to have some consistency in the level. Mm -hmm. And if that's not taught to them how to do that, you're never going to get it right. You're going to set the gain, and the gain's going to have to be adjusted throughout the whole performance. It's just a pain in the neck. So get with your worship leader, the tech, and the worship leader together and train mic technique. Teach it. It's, it's critical. Yeah, I agree. So, so what about what about a drum mic? How far should we have those from the head of the drum? Um, I like to keep them within, you know, uh, an inch to three inches. And depending where you're aiming it, I mean, if you want to take a snare drum, for instance, put it right over the snare drum head, over the rim pointed straight down, that's going to give you more attack. If you aim it to the center with the same distance off the head, you're going to get more tonal quality. You're getting more of the frequency response of the drum. So anywhere in between that is an ear thing. It's a subjective thing between you and the drummer. How tight is that snare tuned? You know, it's going to be a tat, 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 or is it going to be a deeper snare? How about under snare? <laughs> what do I mic the under snare for? That's where all the high frequencies live. That's where all the sizzle is. But now you have two mics facing each other. So we'll talk about phase a little bit. I'm not saying to automatically flip the bottom one out of phase because this is seeing a negative wave. This is seeing a positive wave. So they're not working together. But I would not hit that phase button reverse until I thought, well, it doesn't really sound so bad with it out. Maybe because they're not facing directly opposite. Maybe this one's like this and this one's like that. So all this is going to do, the, the 180 phase reversing is just going to flip it or put them in the same category like this right so if it sounds fuller with the button out leave it alone if it sounds thin with the button out then try hitting the button in and see what happens with the sound um that's that's a little bit about 
phase reverse. Phase reverse can fix some things, but it can't fix a lot of things. The coolest device I think I've seen in recent years was the thing that radial engineering was making called the phaser, which you put two microphones into it and you can actually dial out the comb filtering. You can dial them so they're in phase together, the right amount. Mm. It's not one or the other. That's a pretty cool device. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, overheads, it's different. You know, I hats, just don't put it where the high hats are are blowing air, get it above yeah. that. And then we're going to talk about patterns too, because patterns have a lot to do with what microphones you're going to use and where. Yeah. So what about, what about kick drum before we move on to that? How would you place your kick drum mic? Depends if you're using one, two, three, four mics. <laughs> Don't What's laugh. your preferred setup? Two. Two? Two to have one inside, probably a condenser. Uh, could be like a surface, uh, like a, a PZM type mic, a Beta 91, something like that in there. Not with a, a, a kick that's filled with stuffing. Have to be like a little light pillow in there that barely touches the two sides, rest it in there. And then maybe a nice dynamic in the hole, like a, you know, uh, Audix makes some nice kick mics. Beta 91, uh, Beta 52, AKG D112. I mean, there's a lot of good kick mics, RE20s. <laughs> um, that's a subjective thing too, but in the hole. And uh, again, just don't stick it in the hole. Have somebody there moving things in and out and moving the adjustments so that the things aren't just pointed at the beater head. Maybe you want to point that kick drum hole microphone toward the shell more than at the beater. And then you also have to take into consideration some delay because the condenser is going to hear the sound before the one in the hole does. So they're going to be slightly off. If this one's like a foot away from the condenser, dial in a millisecond of delay on the kick drum in the hole. Now they'll be in phase. That's good stuff. Right. When you have the two mics, is there one that like kind of functions as the primary mic and then the other one's just kind of filling in something? Or That's the beauty that of having two mics. It's almost like a keyboard player with a, a clavinet sound and a piano sound. He doesn't have to use them in a layer. He can use them independently. So I can use the condenser mic for the, the, the attack and this for the thump, right? So if it's like a slow ballad or something, like a big and heavy thing, you can use that just one in the hole and forget the one inside. But now maybe you need something with a little bit more brightness and attack to it. Shut the one in the hole off and just use the one inside. Then there's other times you might want to try to blend them. You know, use them as two different independent sources. Maybe high pass one, maybe low pass the other one, you know? <laughs> yeah. So use yeah. them as colors, as colors. And that's why some people use three mics. So they'll put maybe like a old like a sub kick on the outside, have one in the hole, have one inside, and have one on the beater side. You can get crazy with this stuff. I'll show you some <laughs> pictures of the Frank Filippetti microphone setup sometime, or the one that uh, my friend Danny Duncan just did. There must have been like I don't know thirty mics on the kit. That's awesome. <laughs> but they don't use them all at once, right? They just use it to yeah. capture, and you do the same thing with live sound. Just because you have the mic set up there. Doesn't mean I have to use them all the time. It's like with overheads, Cade. You know, I get the the majority of my sound from my overheads, not from the close mics. I get the body of my sound from the overhead, either one or two. If it's a, a mono PA, you don't need two overheads. One is good. One is great. Now, I don't hear the snare enough. Add a snare mic. I don't hear the bottom end enough. Add a kick. I don't hear these toms over here enough. 
add one there. But you don't start out with eight mics and then figure out which ones you're going to use. You get the body of your sound and add for articulation what you want to bring in more of. And if you don't need it, mute it. Awesome. Less is more, right? Less is more all the time. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on to demystifying the pickup patterns. Uh, okay. Like, what the heck does cardioid even mean? I'm sure a lot of people are asking that question. So, okay. go for well, it. Cardioid, wh- where have you heard part of that word before? Cardio has to do with the heart, right? <laughs> so, it's a heart-shaped yep. pattern. So, if this is... This happens to be a, a hypercardioid mic, but I'll just use it for reference here. So if this was a cardioid, the pa- the pattern of pickup would be such that the most sensitive spot would be right here. And as it rotates off to the side, it's going to get less and less frequency and less gain until it just finally winds up around the back where it comes in like an angle, like thick of a heart shape upside down. So I got this, Right. But I'm going to flip it. So where it comes in like this, that's called a null, N-U-L-L, nullify, to make void, to cancel. So this is most sensitive. This is least sensitive. It's a heart-shaped pattern. So if I want to aim this mic, I aim this at the source, and I aim this part, the null, at what sounds I don't want to get in the mic. So if this is a worship leader, Voice, floor monitor, snare drum, hi hat, <laughs> yep. choir, speaker cluster. I want the undesired sound to arrive at the null. So these are the easiest mics to use because it's just thinking about the source and what you don't want. They have the widest, most forgiving pickup pattern in the front. So if I get around to the side, I'm still going to get some good gain top, bottom, left to right. As soon as I flip it around, I'm not going to get hardly anything except everything below 250. It's not going to reject bass frequencies. You know that bass waves are omnidirectional. So if you've got a floor monitor that's kicking up, 100 hertz to the back of this mic, you better high pass it. <laughs> Good tip. <laughs> or, high, or high pass the monitor. Because even though it's a cardioid, it's going to hear all that bottom end stuff. If everybody understands that, sometimes I use a microphone not for just the sound quality, but for what the talent requires. So let's say I'm a keyboard player, and I'm a singer keyboard player. If I'm using in-ear monitors, it really doesn't matter what kind of pattern you use. But if you're using a wedge, do you really want to use a cardioid? Because that wedge is going to be over here. It can't be in front. can't be here. Music stand, pedals, keyboard. So I have to put it off to the side, which means it's going to get not as loud as if I use a different kind of a mic. It's going to get some of that monitor in the pickup of the cardioid. That's where hypercardioids come in. The nulls are off to the side. They're not in back. So Mm. hypercardioids rejecting from about 120 degrees off axis. So it's sensitive here, not sensitive here and here. (laughs) And in the back, you've got a little lobe of pickup. So you've got to watch. If there's anything behind a hypercardioid, it could actually pick it up. Now, I can use that as an advantage, too. Um, all the beta series of Shure microphones are super cardioid, which are similar to hyper, just not as radical. 
So let's say I only have one channel in my PA for the snare drum and a hi-hat. If I used a hypercardioid, I could aim this at the snare and this at the hi-hat. <laughs> and I'd get a little bit of bleed nice. of the hi-hat into the snare drum channel. Just to hear it, because I don't have a separate mic or channel for it. But most of the time, what yeah. you're going to do is you're going to use it to reject sound. So have you ever seen rock stars or even worship leaders who are rock stars? <laughs> <laughs> with, a, with, a, with a microphone with two monitors. Have you ever seen that? Uh-huh. Well, that mic is probably a hypercardioid because of that. But I've even seen pros make the mistake. They'll put like a cardioid with two monitors here, and that's a no-no. Or they'll put a wedge behind a hypercardioid, which is another no-no, because now it's going to hear all that stuff. So you've got you've to be careful not only the type of mic, the operating principle, dynamic ribbon condenser. You got to also be aware of the pickup pattern. Omnis, they pick up everything. So, what are you going to use that for in a live application? What? Anything? Probably not. I don't know. Yeah, probably not. Probably not. Uh, in a studio, you'd use it all the time. You might have eight background vocalists on your worship team, all with individual mics on different channels. But in a studio, what I would do is put a nice Omni in a beautiful sounding room and put the eight singers around it. And with one microphone, yeah. you'd pick up that whole group beautifully. Now, a lot of people are using the a lab or some type of headset on their pastor that's omnidirectional. How do you feel about that? Well, omnidirectionals have one advantage over directional mics. The directional mics are the ones we just discussed. Cardioid, supercardioid, hypercardioid. Those are all directional. Omni doesn't exhibit proximity effect. What is proximity effect? Proximity effect is this. When I get closer to this mic, you're going to hear the bottom beef up a lot. Omnis don't do that. So if you're a pastor doing spoken word stuff, you're going to have a smoother response without all the extra buildup of bass. They also are, are they, they don't hear wind. They don't hear pages turning. They're able to do all that kind of stuff that directionals are notorious for. Plosives. That stuff doesn't happen with Omnis. What you have to worry about, though, with Omnis is four monitors or PA. If somebody walks near the cluster and they haven't rung it out, that thing is going to feed back way earlier than a headworn is. But in terms of smoothest of a response, for, it's for, for a very natural sermon, let's say, to be read or the gospel to be said, Omnis are, are probably better. They're not going to be as is uh you know with all this stuff kind of happening yeah um if you get it consistent too i guess it doesn't matter but with they do have directional head warns too and you got to be careful where you put them you probably should put them under the lip or aside over the lip because if you put it right in front of the lip you're going to get these big pops and plosives where omnis don't do that and you can put an Omni anywhere, too, you know. You don't have to have a head-worn mic. If you look at Broadway, they'll put, like, an Omni on a forehead for singers. They've done projections, spectrographs of how the voice looks as it's coming out of a, out of a human lung. It goes up. It doesn't go down. So you got a, a mic here that's not getting half of what's going up. <laughs> so when you see Broadway singers, the lapel is on their forehead under a hat or under, a, under their hair or something. Or you can put one right behind the ear and band-aid it. So if you have a, a lapel and you want to repurpose it, you don't have the money for a head worn, 
take that lapel, put it right on your ear, tape it down, and you got a great head-worn microphone. It'll pick up everything on the face. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm glad that you explained the difference between cardioid, supercardioid, hypercardioid, and like how to choose which one, because I don't think I've ever heard an explanation that clear. And it's basically all about what you want to reject from the microphone. And that's right. how you choose. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's really and good. You're going to have some kickback with, with you know, people who want to use a particular microphone, but you might have to say, well, I, I might be able to do that. Like, for instance, let's say you have somebody standing in front of the drum set with a microphone and they just bought a, you know, a KSM 9 or a, a 104 or 105, whatever microphone they're using, whatever flavor. And so, yeah, I definitely would love you to use that. That's a great mic, but you can't stand there. You have to stand over there, or the drums have to go over there. Now you can use it, right? In, in engineering, you know this is a fact. I made something better, but there's a compromise. What is it? So I, I, I'm a lot faster in my car now, but I'm using like 10 times more gas, right? Mm -hmm. There's always a trade-off of what you can do with what choices you have. Yep. So... Yeah, well, this has been this has been so good. We're out of time, but we could probably keep going, huh? <laughs> What's the best way for people to stay connected with you? DougAtWorshipMD.com. It's easy. Awesome. Well, don't miss this opportunity to connect with Doug. Just send him an email, DougAtWorshipMD.com. And as always, thanks for being with us. We need your help to get this podcast out to everybody who needs it. So please leave us a rating and a review on whatever platform you are using. And don't forget to subscribe so we can let you know when the next episode comes out. So go implement what you learn in this podcast and we'll catch you next time. Mm -hmm.